0: Okay, so can we misread Christianity? Can you misread the Bible? Of course we can, right? If Gallup polled unchurched people in Waco or Chicago, Los Angeles, or New York, if they polled them and asked this one question, how do you think unchurched people would respond? The majority of them, all right? Is Christianity about good news or good advice? Unchurched people, self-consciously, don't come to church, but they're perceiving Christianity and they're looking at the church. How would they answer that question? Well, what is good advice? The things I'm about to mention, I have personally either done myself or I have heard others do or I just made up. Okay, here it is. You ready? How, here's good advice. Things like how to experience God. Five steps to live the victorious Christian life. Two secrets to tap into the Holy Spirit. How to do hard things for God. How to kiss dating goodbye. How to become a sold out, purpose driven, passionate, surrender all, fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. David's three spiritual stones for killing the giants in your life. How not to lust like David. How not to commit adultery like David. How not to then murder your best friend like David. And how not to then cover it up like David. (laughs) Growing kids God's way. The Psalms and singing God's way. Federal headship and the proper place for women in the home and in the church nehemiah's leadership principles moses and humility in massive doses church growth techniques from the book of acts and in my favorite all-time favorite 1000 biblical principles for eliminating stress <laughs> that one i made up all right what if we answered this we asked the question this way if you grew up in church, what was the dominating aroma? Those of you that are in real estate and those of you that sold a house or bought a house, you know that when you sell a house, what are you supposed to do? Bake cookies. So people are coming in to see it. They smell the aroma of the house, and it's just attractive, and it's just like, I want a cookie, and I want milk, and I want this house, right? <laughs> so what is the aroma? You who grew up in the church, what's the aroma? What's the indelible vision and force and atmosphere, the air of the church you grew up in? Good news or good advice? Those of you who grew up in a Christian home, was your home a place to rest or to perform? Was it your place of safety and just I can be myself. It's a place of acceptance. It's a place of love. Or it is a place that I need to be a certain way that people want me to be and I'm just kind of low-grade fever and anxiety every time I go home. Don't worry, no polls need to be taken because the polls are actually already in. These polls have been done and they've been documented. Tim Keller documented in Prodigal God, he says that young people, document that young people are fleeing their Christian homes, fleeing their Christian churches to guess what? Find refuge in the city. Safety in the city. Finding themselves in the city. Because they're burned out on good advice. Because they're burned By good advice. And the Apostle Paul comes in and he opens up the book of Romans and he says, To all who are burned out, and to all who have been burned, and to all who are burdened, and to all who are broken, you're not fleeing real Christianity, you're fleeing good advice. So let me, Paul says show you real Christianity. What we are going to do is look at real Christianity. What is it? Well, Romans 1, 16, 17, whether your device or your, you know, your actual book, uh, this is Paul's thesis for Romans. It's the big idea. It's the dominating, driving, capturing idea of Romans. If we reach into Romans 1, 16, and 17 and we pull our hand out, we bring the book of Romans with it, so Romans is about the gospel. So I'm going to give you those of you that need an outline of what we're going to do for oof, well, at least 2 years with interspersed series defining the gospel 1 1 through 17 needing the gospel 118 through 320 321 through 5 chapter 5 the gospel as justification chapter 6 through 8 the gospel as sanctification what happens when you miss the gospel Israel 9 through 11 12 through 16, the gospel practically believed and lived out and enjoyed and appreciated and pushed into your life. Gospel life, 12 through 16. There's the book. So what is the gospel? Paul, in this passage, answers that question in four stunning, breathtaking, unbelievable ways. Now I want you to know there probably could be about 10 I was coming home from a birthday party last night, and I said, honey, man, this, I, I don't know. Romans is just, it's huge. I could, she's like, honey, you don't need to say everything. I'm like, no, I do need to say everything. Mm-hmm. No, you don't need to say everything. This is Romans, honey. So I pushed 10 points into four because I need to say everything. Are you ready? Here we go. What is the gospel? What's the word literally mean? You know what the word literally means? It means good announcement. A good herald, a good declaration, a good message, good news. In the ancient Greco-Roman culture, it was actually associated with a specific context. When a Roman emperor or master general or king went out to face a barbarian horde, and when he went out and he conquered that barbarian horde, he sent back evangelion. He sent back gospel. He sent back good news to the capital. We won. They've been defeated. It's over. Martin Lloyd Jones. Some of you have heard this. So if you've heard it before, now I want you to like internalize it for ministry. He's one of the last, considered one of the last great Puritans, and he said famously, "He said, look." If if you're a king and you're an emperor and barbarians invade your country, if this was my case, it would probably be my ancestors, the Vikings, invading your country. And they desolate everything, destroy everything, level everything to the ground. It gets word news that village and town after town is just desolate. Despair reigns in your kingdom and you marshal your army as quickly as possible and you run out to meet the foe and you get obliterated, annihilated. And your last heroic act is you grab a messenger, you look him in the eye, and you send him back to the capital city, and you tell the city to fight for their lives. The enemy's coming. And that guy runs, and he runs, and he runs however far it is, and he runs into the city, and everybody's and The whole city's at the battle, at the gates, and the whole city's at the walls, and they're looking, and they're like, oh, no, and he goes, fight for your lives. Archers on the wall, cavalry at the west gate. That's good advice. Fight for your lives, fight for an almost hopeless, unachievable victory. The gospel's different. A gospel declaration is not fight for your lives, good advice. A gospel declaration is the king crushes the brutal enemy. Wipes them out. You don't even smell their campfires anymore. And he sends and he grabs his best, finest, right-hand man and says, Nike, run. (laughs) And that person runs into the capital city and is going, We won victory. No fear of death. No fear of shame. No fear of brutality. Peace. Hope. Freedom. You can live again. The messengers bring good news a proclamation, a declaration, an announcement of the king's victory, a victory already won. That's gospel. So, what is the gospel? First answer. The gospel is good news of a king's triumphant victory, not good advice. Fight for your lives. What is the gospel? Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is God's gospel. Do you see that? It's a phenomenal phrase, the gospel of God. God's gospel. So the gospel is not Paul's gospel. He's been set apart for it. You want to know what his vision is? You want to know what the vision of the church is? You want to know what drives the apostle? He's set apart for this good news. He was called, he was reached, he was going to go murder Christians and Jesus intervened and said, no, I'm setting you apart for this kind of announcement, this good news announcement. It's not your gospel, Paul, and it's not the church's. It's not a great theologian's. It's not Calvin's. It's not Burkoff's. It's not Jonathan Edwards's. It's not Jeff Hatton's, it's not a famous writer's. It's God's gospel, God's announcement of victory, God's work, God's performance, God's doing, dying, rising. This means that you and I are not at liberty to reshape God's gospel. We're not at liberty to mess around with it. We're not at liberty to kind of restructure it and make it better or lessen it. Leslie Newbigin is a famous churchman, missionary apologist. He says it this way. We're not at liberty to domesticate the gospel. To reach into the gospel and actually take the power right out of it. And the number one way we and the church domesticate the gospel is turning it into good advice. What is the gospel? God's gospel. That's what it is. What is the gospel? Well, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Set apart for the gospel of God, relative pronoun, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel, according to this phrase, in verse 2, is what the Bible is all about. So we have the gospel not being something new. It's not innovative. It's always been this way. It's been this way all the way since Genesis 3.15. The Old Testament is about God's gospel. You see that word prophets? That's referring to all the Old Testament writings. It certainly refers to Moses because Moses was a prophet and he wrote the first five books. It certainly refers to David because David was called a prophet and he wrote the prayer book, the Psalms. And as Luther says, all of scripture is completely prophetical. Every writer in the Old Testament is a prophet speaking for God. God. And remember, Paul's Bible is the Old Testament. So when Paul, when he would go to cities and he would, he would preach the Bible, he would display the wonders of the Bible, it was the Old Testament. When he was set apart for the gospel, he was set apart to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. I know that's hard for us sometimes because we're like, where is Jesus sometimes? There's these Christ silent passages and we're like, where is he? Hard enough in some of the places in the New Testament, according to Paul, all he had was the Old Testament, and Jesus was everywhere. because the Old Testament scriptures point forward to God's gospel. You could say it this way: in the Old Testament is the outline, the shadow, the skeletal superstructure of God's gospel. Just as real. We mentioned this in, in uh, Sunday school this morning I'm standing here, and you see flesh. Bone, muscle, tissues, ligaments, right? Skin. Inside is a skeletal superstructure that's just as much me as the outside of me. In the Old Testament, you get a skeletal structure of God's gospel that's just as real as when the New Testament comes along and starts filling the superhero in completely. And so when, whenever the Old Testament Whenever the gospel in the Old Testament is discovered for you and me, and whenever it's identified for you and me, whenever it's pulled out of the text and displayed for you and me, whenever we reflect on it, whenever we think about it, and whenever we pray it, it releases power on us. It releases the power of God on us. What's the gospel? Well, so far it's good news, not good advice. It's God's gospel, not our gospel. And it's what the whole Bible is about, not just the New Testament. What else? Two and three. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Concerning his son. The gospel is his son. Concerning means content. The content of the gospel is his son. The center of the gospel is the son. The gospel is a person. Now for those of you that love theology like I do and love doctrine and love it, love it, read it, eat it, drink it, we need to remember that the gospel is not a proposition but a person. And for those of us that love experiences and we love the, to encounter God and we love to, remember Intelligent Mystic, Intelligent Mystic, and we love the, the realities of enjoying the realities of who God is, What well, we need to remember that the gospel is not a spiritual feeling inside of us. It's a person outside of us. And because he's outside of us, he's who we experience. It's not that we have any experience that we want to have. The experience is him. The experience is the wonder of who this person (laughs) is and what he's done. And that alone changes kingdoms, changes worlds, changes lives. Who is this person? Who is this son? Who is Jesus? Who is he? Verse three and four. Concerning his son, relative pronoun, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you understand what was just said? Okay, I have. I think I was counting up in the first service. Five, but I actually have six, maybe seven commentaries on Romans, and three are in the mail, and they were supposed to be here on Friday, and I'm a little hacked off about that. Uh, there are more commentaries written on Romans than any other book in the Bible. And the amount of ink that is spilled on these two verses is off the charts. Why? Because everyone grasps, even though we might not all know what it means, everyone grasps that you're entering into the heart of ultimate reality in whatever's being said right here. That actually 1, 16, and 17 is telling us what the gospel does, 3 and 4 is telling us what the gospel is, who this person is. Watch how Paul is tracing Jesus' lineage from two unbelievable sources or two unbelievable origins. The first one is the second person in the Trinity, Son of God. Now we're going to see that that has two meanings, but right here we know that the Son of God is the second person in the Trinity. So this is the preexistent eternal Son, God himself. Have you ever wondered, I mean, have you ever thought to yourself, have you ever said to someone or someone ever said to you or even you said to God, God, if you or someone, I got this all the time at Brown when I was in campus ministry, at least once a week. Here I get it every maybe once a month, six weeks, something like that. They'll come up to me and say, listen, I believe in God. I don't believe in God, but I believe in God. I would believe in God if he just showed up. If he just said, hey, here I am. And I'm here. Here. See me. He go, and they would say, Man, I believe him then. He did. He showed up. He did say, Here I am. God became flesh. Jesus is from God Himself, He is God. Now, Paul goes to Jesus' lineage, not just from God, which is huge. He goes to David. See that? According to the flesh descended from David. So he's from the lineage of David. Why David? David was Israel's greatest king. David is Israel's most celebrated king. David is the only king in Israel to defeat all of Israel's enemies. We just got done with judges. Did the enemies in the promised land ever get out? No, the answer is no. It didn't happen until David became king and he conquered every enemy and for the first time ever in Israel's history, the promised land had peace, peace. And it all started when a teenager was anointed king and when the the biggest and the most handsome and the tallest Israelite king ever was trembling in his tent. A boy said, I'll slay the giant. And the first invading giant is slain in the land when the first true king shows up in Israel. And then every invading army and every invading nation Everyone that came in to take Israel out, this king obliterated. That's why when Jesus rose from the dead, he was declared. Do you see that in verse 4? Declared to be the ultimate, universal, final king of all kings. This is what Son of God and power means. He's the ultimate universal, final king. I mean, it has traces. It's the son of God, certainly means God being the second person in the Trinity. But what we've lost today in redemptive history that the Apostle Paul is making really, really clear, that title was given to Adam. That title was given to Israel. And that title was given to King David. And now that title is given in power to Jesus himself. He is the ultimate king and when he rose from the dead it was a cosmic epic crowning of the ultimate king and his victory over all enemies in all lands everywhere. John Owen would say that verse four is a declaration of the death of death in the king himself. So the gospel's good news, it's a declaration, it's a promise, it's a proclamation of the ultimate king's victory, his work, his performance, his achievement, his winning, his doing, his dying, his rising, his exaltation. And he did it for those who couldn't. And right now that announcement is being heralded in the capital city of your life. Peace. It's over. It's finished, we won. No death, no disaster, no despair, no destruction. Peace. What is the gospel? Good news, not good advice. God's gospel, not our gospel. What the Bible is all about, not just the New Testament. It's a person. A person who is king and victorious. I'm gonna end with one massive implication and the implication will literally take the rest of the book to fully deal with. <laughs> we will not get this implication until we're done with the book and even then we gotta keep going with the rest of the Bible. And here's the implication. The gospel changes Everything. Everything. Forget what you thought about Christianity because the gospel changes everything. Everything. This means that the gospel is what you most need in this room right now. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, whatever brokenness, whatever fractured relationship, whatever it is, the gospel is what you most need. If you're a self conscious unbeliever, let's say you are self consciously, you don't go to church, but you happen to be here today. I'm so glad you're here. If you are a self conscious unbeliever, a self conscious not believing in God person, the gospel's what you most need. That's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, he's obligated to preach this gospel to everyone, to everyone no matter rank name or serial number no matter social racial economic status no matter gender no matter what human beings every human being needs this it's what we most need but notice what he also does then in verse 15 he actually flips around and he says to those of you who are Christians this is what you most need because he says this is why i'm so eager to preach the gospel to who you at rome the church in rome I can't wait. He says, listen, I have, I have longed to come to the church and preach the gospel to you. In verse 11, he says, to strengthen you. In verse 12, he says, to encourage you. In verse 13, he says, to reap a spiritual harvest among you. And now God's finally letting me go, and I am so eager to see the gospel produce a harvest in your life change and transform and turn it inside it out and actually make you a human being fully human the gospel changes everything it changes your life it changes your relationships it changes homes it changes churches it changes careers it changes conflict it changes everything that's why you have verse 5 that incredible phrase the obedience of faith Obedience is a changed life, and it comes from faith. You want want a life that changes. You want things that change. You want holiness. Whatever you want, it comes from believing the gospel, according to Paul. The gospel is the root that produces all fruit. The gospel is the producer that produces any kind of life change for any Christian. Do you see our Lord in verse 4? This is how we'll end. Notice he's saying our Lord. If he's saying our Lord, what he's going to do, he's inviting, it's an invitation. Our Lord, he's inviting the Romans. He's inviting the Roman church. He's inviting believers to have that our Lord become more deeply pressed and real in a person's life. It's an invitation to believe the gospel. Jesus is actually, Paul is actually inviting the church in Rome to enter into Jesus' own story for them. To find their story in his story. To find out what they are and who they are in who he is and what he's done. To actually find life and come alive in the, the proclamation and the announcement of it's over, it's finished, it's done, he won. Some of you need to believe this. Jesus' victory over your sin and over your shame and over a failure. And you need to hear it's over. It's done. He won. No shame. Why do you feel shame? There is no such thing as shame in my kingdom. I took it all and I obliterated it. No sin. Since power, it's completely broken, and one day it'll be completely removed from you. Though we have a very realistic view of sin. That's why there's Romans 7, and we'll get there. And in some of us, no matter what we do, we just can't sense that God connects with us. He's near with us. He really cares about us. Difficulties and circumstances seem to say he doesn't. Every time a difficulty happens, we say, of course, of course, because he doesn't care about me. I mean, we don't say it verbally because nobody would say that, maybe, but we believe it. Of course. He takes care of Sally, but boy, howdy. I think I get the crumbs. When we believe in his victory, you know what happens? Verse seven becomes real. You start realizing you are loved by God. Some of us need to believe in Jesus and his victory amidst pain and confusion and disappointment and loss and we need to feel verse seven again. What does it say in verse seven? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins every letter that way. He ends every letter that way because he actually believes that what he is writing, the good news he's unpacking, the power of the gospel that he's displaying and he's, he's expositing will bring grace and peace to your life. On the spot right now from God the Father and the Lord Jesus himself the gospel changes everything